Good morning, everybody. Good morning, church. It is so good to see each and every one of you, and uh, I hope that you're having a great week, a blessed week. I hope that you've seen God do some things in your life this week, and uh, it's good to see you guys. And uh, as you're coming on, I see Ben is on, and Chad Kester's on, Matt Wager is on, Ginger is on, my mom's on. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, to you. And uh, so thankful for all your sacrifice over the years, and uh all your support and encouragement, and I uh, love you. So happy Mother's Day to you, Debbie, Teresa, Jessica, all popping on. And uh, it's good to see every one of you. And uh, I hope you're having a great week. Just know that you are all missed and loved. And uh, man, I tell you what, uh, I can't wait for all these restrictions to be lifted. And, uh, you know, it's the crazy thing about it is that around the country, different States are opening up at different times and allowing you to do different things at different times. And and the interesting thing about it is that just about the time we're starting to get excited about it, just about the time we're thinking about, hey, we're going to be able to open up. Oh, no, we get to wait a couple more weeks behind everyone else because it's New York. <sighs> oh, well, right? We're going to make the best of it. And uh, so we're hoping that uh, we can see each other live and in person sooner than more than later. And uh, it is good to see every once in a while we'll have someone drive through the church parking lot and they do the wave and everything else. And we're, we're glad to see every one of you and we hope that you're doing well. Um, you know, uh, only in Rochester uh, can you go from clear blue skies and sunshine to overcast and snow to where you can't see 100 yards in front of you and then repeat that sequence three or four times in like an hour and a half. Uh, only in Rochester, and uh, maybe other people are experiencing that too, but I, was, I couldn't believe it yesterday. I'm out there, and I'm looking up, and it's clear blue skies, and snow is coming down. I'm like, that's not normal. It's not right. But here in New York, you get to do that. And uh, then next thing you know, it's overcast, and then just repeat, repeat, repeat. And uh, so it's, it's exciting to see that. Uh, on a less serious note... Um, with the pandemic taking place around the world, there's been a lot of talk about prophecy and end times events. And one subject that just keeps coming up is that of being microchipped. I don't know if you've seen this a lot, but there's uh, different places around the United States are starting to offer microchips uh, into the palm or the wrist area of uh, their employees. And some of the employees are like, nah, I don't want it. Some of them are saying, yeah, go ahead and do it. And they said, I saw this uh, article and I was watching it and the guy says, oh, this is really cool. And he, and he gets a bag of chips and he goes up to the counter and they just, he puts his wrist out and it takes from his account. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to do that. That just is freaky. So anyway, I was talking about that with a friend this morning. And uh, he said, have you seen all this stuff about being microchipped? And I said, yeah. I said, I am not doing that. I said, there's no way in heaven I'm getting microchipped. He said, yeah, me either. So to quote Bob Hinkie, the only chip that's going into my body is a chip that's full of guacamole and salsa. That's the chip that's going on in my body. So uh, maybe you feel the same way, but uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, everyone has an idea and everything's an end time event and everything's prophecy, but there are some real things that are happening. And uh, if you watch the what's going on in the world scene, it is really getting interesting and uh so the question this morning was, is microchip to the mark of the beast? No, I don't think it is, but I'm still not doing it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'll stick to the chips and guacamole uh, 
form of being chipped. So anyway, let me just say before, uh, it's been a blessing the last couple of weeks being able to have Jim Mates, uh, our assistant pastor, come on and share a few things with you. And uh, But before he does that this morning, let me just say happy Mother's Day to all of you who are mothers. And uh, if you are here present with me, I'd say if you have a mother, raise your hand. And of course, every one of you would have to raise your hand and you thank the Lord for them. Uh, I'm thankful to God for my mother and the sacrifices that she made early on with my dad, with all the physical handicaps that he had and uh, having so many surgeries and in and out of the hospital a lot. Uh, my mom really did a lot for us growing up. She worked long hours. Uh, she sacrificed a lot for us. So mom, thank you. I appreciate you. I love you. And uh, thankful for all that you've done for us and so forth. Um, but for the rest of you who are mothers as well, what a what a blessing you have. Uh, I'm so thankful, uh, not only for my mom, but for my wife, who I think is a phenomenal mother. Uh, I think she's the best mother around, uh, you know, as far as to my kids, the best mother that my kids could have possibly had. So Dawn, happy Mother's Day to you. And then I got a, three or four others that I just appreciate uh, more than they know. Mama Dinkins, uh, I'm her big boy number two. And uh, so at any rate, I appreciate her, and she's always mothering me and giving me some words of advice. And then one more, Patty Mates. She's also like a mother to me, and I appreciate her so much and uh, all that she does for us and praying for us. And uh, I'm thankful for the women that God has allowed in my life to encourage me, to instruct me, to just be there as support and encouragement through all the circumstances of life. And uh, what a blessing that is to have mothers who really care for us, um, spend time in prayer and on their knees for us. And uh, so especially you four, my mom, Dawn, Mama Dinkins, and Patty Mates, thank you for your investment into my life. And uh, I know there are others who have meant a lot to me over the years as well. And I wish you have a, a very happy and blessed Mother's Day. Um, so without further ado, I just want to encourage uh, you to stay tuned uh, as Pastor Jim comes and shares with us for a little bit this morning. And uh, I know it's a, a blessing to have him. Some of you don't get to see everybody at, at church, but this is a way that we can be involved in your life a little bit. And uh, so, Jim, you come and share what God's laid on your heart. And then I'll be coming back a little bit later with a message from 2 Timothy chapter 4 entitled Preach the Word. Thank you, Pastor Ken, and we certainly echo everything Pastor Ken has, has shared, and uh, mothers, how we, how we just praise the Lord for, for you and, and uh, all the efforts you put forth in this life and, and uh, toward everyone, uh, whether adults or children or, or who they might be, and, and um, we just miss seeing, I'm, I'm looking out over at the backs of these chairs, and uh, we certainly, Patty and I were talking this morning about how tired we are of, of the emptiness here, uh, even though in spirit we know that uh, it's full. But um, uh, we just can't wait until we're all mingling about and, and fellowshipping together here and, uh, and watching Pastor Ken and listening to him from the pulpit. And uh, uh, so, but the day is coming, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, uh, before Pastor Ken comes, uh, I've got uh, a, a study that, uh, that, that I've enjoyed over the years that I'd like to share with you, and um, that's meant a lot to me, uh, and it has to do with King Jehoshaphat. 
um, uh, one of the kings of Judah. And um, what, a, what a tremendous uh, man this was. The, the, the kings were not perfect, just like we are not perfect. Um, they had problems, they had issues, they stumbled from time to time. I mean, imagine being one man having to uh, be king over a kingdom of people and the responsibility that that, that would be. Uh, I mean, it's just enormous. But, uh, and, and there were uh, many bad kings, many kings that, that floundered, and uh, there were many good ones. And, uh, but, but nobody perfect, just like we are not perfect. And uh, so if you'd like to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 19, uh, we'll be in chapters 19 and 20, uh, to take a look at um, King Jehoshaphat of Judah and um, what God did with his life and uh, how he responded to the Lord's, uh, the, the ministry the Lord had for him. Um, in um, picking it up in Second Chronicles chapter 19, uh, uh, verse 1, it says, following the demise of Ahab, king of Israel, now remember we're in a divided kingdom here. So we had a king of uh, Israel and, and a, the northern kingdom and a, a king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And um, so following the demise of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned to his house in Jerusalem. He had been at a, in, in battle and uh, a very weary situation and uh, he finally got to come home. So he returned to his house in Jerusalem. He then began to institute reforms within the kingdom of Judah. So there were problems in the kingdom of Judah, but he was about to institute some reforms to make it a more godly kingdom. Um, and um, and he, he said, um, and, and there was a, a prophet named Hananiah, or Hanani, who... Uh, had some things to, to say, good things. He said, he said to uh, Jehoshaphat, good things are found uh, in you in that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So verse 4, so Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. He restored them. They were backslidden. They were scattered all over the place. And he brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. So immediately, as soon as he got back from this battle he had been in and, and got settled back in uh, to his home, um, he, he began to, and he, found, he knew about problems in the, in the kingdom, and he began to, to uh, take, take it to task and... Um, uh, and begin to, to arrange things and, and get people more into a godly state of mind and, uh, uh, and, and just to improve uh, the spirituality of, of the whole situation. So, uh, so he, he set up judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now, as, as Je uh, Jehoshaphat went along here in trying to restore godliness to uh, the kingdom, um, he, he's, he's, he's going, you're going to hear him 
uh, take charge and uh, uh, move things along in the right direction. Um, to, to, he said, take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. And that's an excellent charge for all of us, uh, to, uh, that, that we, we, just, uh, we, we take heed to what we are doing, and, uh, and our, all our judgments be godly judgments. Verse 7 says, now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it. For there is no iniquity, iniquity with the Lord God, with our Lord God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. So his people have been um, charged now with an understanding that Jehoshaphat was here to clean up, to, to clean house. And um, verse 7, now therefore let the fear of the Lord be upon you, take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. Verse 8, moreover, in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the chief fathers of Israel when they, uh, when they returned to Jerusalem. And he commanded them, verse 9, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. Uh, whatever case comes, verse 10, whatever case comes from your brethren who dwell in their cities, whether of bloodshed or offenses against law or commandment, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them, lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this and you will not be guilty. So they're hearing, his people are hearing a lot of, of things uh, that are uh, Jehoshaphat, that Jehoshaphat has taken charge of here and, uh, and that he really means business. Uh, verse 20, now it happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazan, Tamar, which is Engedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now, we talked last week about fear and worry and those kind of things. And Fear can be a good motivator. And, this, and, and the kind of fear we talked about last week was not necessarily a very good motivator, motivating type of fear. But here, this is a fear that gets things moving. This is a fear that gets people thinking and responding to a situation. And in this situation, uh, this, these people are coming to, to battle against Jehoshaphat and against all of Judah. Uh, so... Uh, he feared and set himself to seek the Lord. Now notice, uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when something scares me, when, I, when I'm afraid of something, um, the last thing I do is seek the Lord. And that's exactly the first thing that I ought to do. And uh, I'm learning, as I'm sure you are, but um, uh, that's the first thing we should do. 
So it says in verse 3 here, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Verse 4, So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. So now we don't have just, just Jehoshaphat in, in the fray here. We have all of Judah coming together. Very important. Very important for us as a body of believers to come together in unity and, and to, to uh, come together and, and to uh, be, be uh, all heading in the same direction. And um, so the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat and feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. Now that uh, I got uh, a little bit ahead of myself there. Uh, but they all came together. And uh, from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, at this point, Jehoshaphat is going to do something that also uh, I'm guilty of doing, and, uh, and uh, I think probably you are from time to time. He was about to pray for this situation, this situation that had him, had, had him become so fearful. And so he's about to pray with his people. So, so important. And um, so in verse 5, it says, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, and this is Jehoshaphat's prayer now, and, and this is one of the most infamous prayers in all the Bible and one of the most effective prayers in all of Scripture. Here it is. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, whether sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction. Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom, would not, you, whom you would not let invade Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. And, and these, these last statements now are so important in this prayer of, of his. He says, we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. They, he turned their focus to the God of the heavens, their heavenly Father, and in this uh, difficult time. And, uh, and he admitted, we, we don't know what to do. We don't have an answer for this. 
These people are coming at us uh, from, from east, west, north, and south. We don't know why and what they're up to, but they, they, they want to conquer us. They want to overcome us and overflow. And he said, we don't, do not what, know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We're watching you, Lord, to see uh, what, what you would have for us here. Verse 13 says, Now all Judah stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, in the midst of the assembly. Now here come their mar- marching orders from Jehaziel. Uh, as a result of Jehoshaphat's prayer. Verse 15, And he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Important, important thing for them to grasp and for us to grasp when we get in, in difficulty uh, when, when things happen that, that up, upset the apple cart in our lives, that uh, our eyes be focused upon him and, uh, and, and that we not fear. And he says, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 16, tomorrow, the, mar- the marching orders continue here now, tomorrow go down against them. Can you imagine... Good, yeah, yeah, right. Let, let's, let's go down against this tremendous force that's come against us. We'll just walk on down there. But look what the Lord tells him. Um, for the battle is not yours, but God, God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of, of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. They don't know where all these people are, that are coming against them, but God knows who they are and and where they are and where they're coming from and where they're going. So tomorrow, verse 16, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Zeruel. Now, the news is getting better and it's about to get a lot better because verse 17, as this continues, says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Huh? I mean, I can see myself standing there. And I mean, that's awful good news, but how, how is this going to be taken care of if, if, if we're not going to be, be fighting in this battle? You will not need to fight in this battle. Furthermore, he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Now he instructs them again to to not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And then picking it up in verse 18, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites, of the children of Korahites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. 
Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. What a godly king to have at this difficult time and at this moment. Uh, he, he's, he, this, is, this is the best example of, of a king uh, in God's army. Verse 21, And when he had consulted when the, with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 22, Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So it was self-defeat, one against another. Verse 24, so when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. So this this enemy had been totally destroyed uh, without them hardly having to lift a finger. Um, So, again, verse 24, when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen to the earth. No one had had escaped. And this just goes to show us that if we look to God, if we keep our eyes and our focus upon him, when we run into whatever difficulties in life, uh, this this was an extreme difficulty that Jehoshaphat and and his people were facing. Um, And... Yours may be extreme, uh, not as extreme as this, but when we get into difficulties, to us, they're, they're extreme. They can be very extreme. And even though we may be, not be in this kind of battle situation that Jehoshaphat found himself, uh, it still may be a serious situation that, that we're attempting to overcome. And we have to look to, uh, turn our eyes to our Heavenly Father and, and pray for his guidance and wisdom in, in the depths of, of, of whatever problem it is. Um, so there's no question that in this example that we have in this situation with Jehoshaphat, that our Lord is our strong tower. Mighty is he. And um, since Jehoshaphat's prayer included um, saying, saying to the Lord that uh, we, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I'd like you to sing in closing uh, that song, that chorus that we sing. And if you join with me, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Are you ready? Here we go, church. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his mercy and grace. Thank you, folks, for uh, uh, your continued uh, prayer for us and, and us for you as well. What a privilege it is to 
to grow in grace and in, in, in the Lord together. And uh, th thank you for uh, your attentiveness here. And uh, we look forward to each week uh, as we go along here. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're going to be here just for a little bit. Thank you, Jim, for those reminders. Man, we need those as often as possible. And uh, just to keep our focus on Jesus, to turn our eyes upon him and to, to know that he's in control, he's in charge, he's taking care of all these things. And uh, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to be reminded of that. Uh, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter Four, we're getting into this, uh, uh, towards, towards the end of the book of Second Timothy that we've been going through for a couple months now. But the title of the message this morning is simply Preach the Word. Preach the Word. And, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity. I, I am so excited. As I said last week, I'm excited about this passage and I've been anxiously awaiting this text of scripture. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson made this statement. Preaching God's Word is the eternal gift, the central gift of the Spirit given by Christ to the church. I don't know that there's any other thing more important than the Word of God to be proclaimed in every generation than, the, than through the means of preaching the Word of God, through teaching the Word of God. And uh, I'm excited to be able to do that. And as one man well said, nothing takes the place of preaching except for better preaching. And uh, so I like that. And uh, as a preacher, that means a lot to me, that the only thing that can take the place of preaching is better preaching. And uh, I want to be challenged by that. I want to be preached to. I want to, to be able to receive the Word of God and to be able to apply it to my heart and my life. I want to be convicted by it. I want to be encouraged by it. I want to be taught by it. I want it to, to rule in my life. And uh, that all those things are accomplished in part through the preaching of the Word of God. And... Um, the word preach really comes from the Greek word caruso, uh, or karyoso, um, which means to herald, or is a herald as one who acts as a medium of the authority of the one who proclamation he makes. In other words, he is heralding the good news. He is proclaiming the news that has been given to him. And so you can kind of think back in the 1800s or early 1900s when somebody would go out with the newspapers of the day and they would herald news, 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 and they would, you know, try to sell the papers that were in print and get everybody knowing what was taking place and what was going on and, and so forth. So it's the idea of the thing being proclaimed as the word of God and it's going to go forth. So to proclaim it and to publicly proclaim it, to herald it as a, as a, as a public crier, if you will, and letting people know the good message of the gospel and the truth of the word of God. The town official who would make a proclamation in a public gathering, a herald may not even like the message that he was to proclaim, or the people may not have wanted to hear it. And thus the temptation from the herald may have been to change the message to soften the blow, so to speak, to spin the text, all of which would have resulted in the herald losing his head. So you see how critical it is to preach and herald the king's message without spin and not using it as a springboard to personal agenda. 
And so often there are people who want to water it down. They want to soften it. And uh, just preach something that's encouraging. Something that will lift somebody up. Something that won't make you feel too bad. Well, I don't know about you, but if the Word of God is not helping us, if it's not, if it's not going forward in a way that instructs us and convicts us and encourages us, then we are not doing our job. And so we must make sure that we are heralding the Word of God and proclaiming it as God would have us to do that. Uh, the King's message and the King's agenda, agenda is to be paramount, period, as uh, Sinclair Ferguson said. It's not about our message because our message doesn't matter. Our message doesn't mean anything. Our opinions, our preferences, our convictions, uh, they're nothing if they're not based on the Word of God. And the Word of God is what must be paramount. Chuck Swindoll, on his word, says it's an official representative of the king who would announce the king's message in the realm to a specific person. And uh, so I agree with Chuck Swindoll, and I think there's probably been no... Uh, no one more adamant about being true to the word than Chuck Swindle has over the year, over the years. And so, so the hero, the Kerux, enjoyed the protection of the king as long as he carried out his duty. And so if, if somebody as a preacher of the word of God is worried about, uh, some disrespect or is worried about, uh, some backlash from standing strongly on the word. Just know as long as you are proclaiming the king's message, as long as you are carrying out his deed, you are also under his protection. And so we as preachers, we have the opportunity to go forward under God's protection, knowing that only what he allows is going to happen to us. And so that's encouraging to me. So to harm a herald was to invite the wrath of the court. And uh, we talked about that last week in verse 1, talking about it's really a, a legal appeal in this sense. And so to harm a herald was to invite the wrath of the court, the wrath of the king, the wrath of the judge, so to speak. So Paul called himself a carux in 2 Timothy 1.11, and now he passes that baton, that role, on to Timothy as we come into the end of chapter 4 here. And as noted above, the tense is aorist imperative, which conveys a sense of urgency. We've talked about this throughout this study of Second Timothy, that there is a sense of urgency in proclaiming the Word of God. And uh, we must not lighten that. We must not uh, take that sense of urgency away as we come into this idea of proclaiming the Word of God. And so A.W. Tozer said, I heard one of, a gradu- uh, one of the graduates of the theological school who determined to follow his old professor's advice and preach the word only. His crowds were average. Then one day a cyclone hit the little town and he yielded to the temptation to preach on the topic why God sent a cyclone to Centerville. And uh, before I go any further, I'm not saying it's wrong to preach about things that are taking place. I think there's been a bazillion preachers out there preaching about the coronavirus and why God has allowed it. And we don't know the mind of God in all things. But this young preacher was tempted to talk about why God allowed a, you know, such a catastrophe, this cyclone in Centerville. And the church was packed, by the way. And this shook the young pastor, and he went back to his professor for further advice in light of what had happened. And he asked this question, should he continue to preach the word to smaller crowds or try to fill the church by preaching sermons a bit more sensational, a bit more relevant to what's taking place in culture, a bit more relevant to what's taking place in the news, so to speak? Uh, he says, the old man did not change his mind. The old professor Stay true to his advice. He said this, If you preach the word, he told the inquirer, 
you will always have a text. But if you wait for a cyclone, you'll have not enough to wait around for. So A.W. Tozer uh, took that advice and said, listen, we're going to stay true to the word. If I stay true to what's happening in news and, and in what's happening in culture, I'm going to have to wait for the next big event to preach about. So a preacher uh, that I used to serve with made a statement to me once regarding how people listen to or respond to us as preachers. Um, he said, it literally doesn't matter what you say, young man. That's what he said to me. People really don't listen to you anyways until you're at least 45. Well, there is some truth to that statement because sometimes in our youth we get excited, we get, we get to going, we get to rambling, and people kind of turn you off or they just don't care about what you're saying. But that statement at its core bothered me. And it bothered me for this reason. We are heralding the greatest news that could ever be heralded and there are people who just don't care. And uh, oftentimes with age comes a little bit more respect, a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more believability, if you will. But the reality is there are some people who don't listen. And that bothers me for some extent, to some extent, because I want people to know the truth of God's word. And it bothered me because of this. There are people who listen to authority. Well, if they're authority, if they carry a firearm, if they're uh, a colonel or a lieutenant or a corporal or a chief, there is some type of authority in public figure, then they get listened to because of their position. People listen to attorneys because of what they do and because of what they may know concerning the law. And people tend to listen to the lawyer. People listen to judges because what they say is final and what they say has to be carried out. People listen to kings, well, because they're in control and if you don't, you might get tortured for it. People listen to contractors because, well, they know what they're doing. They're builders. They they know how the pipes are supposed to be run. They know how the, the electrical cords are supposed to be wired in. And uh, the, you know, people listen to doctors because they've been to school and they prescribe medicine and they do procedures. And, and I often thought, I wonder how often people listen to preachers in the same sense. For many years, I, you know, I think as a younger preacher, I was definitely excited. And I've said for years, ever since God called me to be a preacher in eighth grade, and when I surrendered that call, I've been excited to be a preacher of the Word of God. There's nothing else that I'd rather do on the face of God's earth than to preach and proclaim and to herald the Word of God. But there are people who just don't give respect to that position like they would other positions, like they would an authority figure or an attorney or a judge or a king or a contractor or a, or a doctor, so to, so to speak. Do we listen to a preacher who is heralding the most important word that could ever be heralded in the same sense, with the same weight, with the same authority, with the same clout that we would any of those other positions as we would a preacher? How unfortunate that people will miss out on hearing the Word of God by being challenged through the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of God's Word because, well, He's just a preacher. God's Word has challenged us to preach the Word. This is the message that he was, that Timothy was, uh, or that Paul was proclaiming to Timothy in his, in his uh, last days on earth. And uh, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. This is an awesome passage here in Luke chapter 4. What a great reminder as well. And uh, I, I, I feel the same way as the author here. In Luke chapter 4, I want to just kind of highlight a couple of verses, verses 17 through 22. You know, and this talks about really when, when uh, about Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. 
So it says in verse 16 anyway, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as usual he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wow, if that weren't enough. He goes on and says, He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And I think, and I often wonder if how often have we, as John MacArthur said years ago, one of the greatest things that can happen in the church of Jesus Christ is the preacher say, well, turn your Bibles to such and such a passage, and you get a glance of it, glance at it, and you say, well, I've heard a message on this before, and in our mind we kind of sh- shut down or go into coast mode because, well, we've already heard something like this before. What a travesty. That God, in His ability to use the Word over and over and over again to teach us what He wants us to know, and yet we stifle the Holy Spirit by going into coast mode. I've heard something like that before. Uh, What a blessing. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and so forth. The Gospel has the ability, the Word of God has the ability to change hearts and lives if we will let the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, speak to us and to change us. Uh, over in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, if you would turn over there just for a moment, just a few pages to the right. Acts chapter 13, I want to read just a couple verses, verses 15 and 16. He says this, uh, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. And Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you who fear God, listen. And if I can say with Paul, listen to what God's Word says. Apply that that very statement, that very exhortation to our own lives, and listen to what God wants us to know. And uh, we may apply it. You know, the godly Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, wanted uh, warned that here is the main thing. Preach the word. The pulpit is, as George Herbert says, our joy and throne. He says it's a throne where the word of God goes forth. I tell you what, there is no greater joy, no greater privilege than to be able to sit at the pulpit and to proclaim the word of God. Um, this is our watchtower, uh, McShane goes on to say. He says, this is our watchtower. Here we, here we must warn the people, and the silver trumpet is put into our hand, and woe be unto us if we preach not the gospel. He says, it's almost as though there is a trumpet in our hand, and we are blowing the trumpet. Be why? Because we want everyone to hear it. And when you hear a trumpet go off, it kind of gets your attention, and you look around and see what's, what's going on. And he says, this is the word of God going forward. And uh, we must uh, proclaim it. He says, it is in vain we preach if we preach not the word, the truth as it is in Jesus. First, nothing else matters, he says. Ye are my witnesses. The same came to bear witness of that light. And is not the word of God of the minister to open up the schemes of human wisdom and learning, not to bring his own fancies, but to tell the facts and the glories of the gospel? We must speak of what is within the word of God. He says that's what's important. That's what we must proclaim. Not our own experiences, not our own 
thoughts, our own opinions, not anything that we think is important, but that which is contained in truth, the Word of God. In uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. He says, by the very Word of God, we have what we need to be like Jesus Christ. We have what we need to grow in Him through the pages of the Word of God. Boy, if we don't do that, we're missing the boat as preachers. Uh, our job is not to tickle the ears, as we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, we're to be ready in season and out of season. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in our text, he says in verse 2, Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season. So we're to be ready in season and out of season. J.I. Packer said this, We shall never perform a more important task than preaching. If we are not willing to give time to sermon preparation, we are not fit to preach and have no business in the ministry at all. A well-being of the church totally today depends in large measure on a revival of preaching in the Puritan vein. To the Puritan, faithful preaching was the basic ingredient in faithful pastoring. So the reality is, without faithful preaching, you could not be an effective pastor. You cannot lead the church that God wants you to lead unless you are a student of the Word, as God's Word reminds us in 2 Timothy 2.15. Ray Pritchard writes this, In a world of itching ears, preach the Word. To a generation gone astray, preach the Word. In a time of moral crisis, preach the Word. When people don't want to hear you, Preach the Word. When false teachers abound, preach the Word. In good times and in bad times, preach the Word. When people listen and when they don't listen, preach the Word. God's Word has reminded us and gives us everything that we need to pertain unto life and to godliness. And we must find it in the Word of God. You know, there's a lot of books that are published every year around the world. There are all kinds of publishing companies. There's self-help books, and if you just do this, and if you just do that, and if you just apply this, and if you just go there, and you know, just think this way, and all kinds of things. But you know, there's never been a book that has impacted the heart of man like the Word of God. Nothing will have the effect on human beings like the Word of God if we just let it, through the Holy Spirit, convict us, encourage us, teach us, instruct us. We must live by the Word of God. People have asked the question, what does it mean in season and out of season? That means all the time. Even when you don't feel like it. Even when you don't uh, you know, have the time for it, you make time for it. It, it. It's the Word of God. So preaching should be done in light of Christ's return, His coming judgment, and His glorious kingdom. I love that phrase. Preaching, talking about being in, in season and out of season... Uh, it has the idea of preaching that it should be done in light of Christ's return. Remember as, as we looked last week, verse 1, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of His appearing in His kingdom. We noticed that last week in chapter 4, verse 1 of Second Timothy. So preaching should be done in light of Christ's return, His coming judgment, and His glorious kingdom. So the reality is we have so much to learn from this. And it's the Word of God that's going to change our lives if we allow it. So he says, this is what we're to do through the Word of God. Reprove, rebuke, and correct. Reprove, rebuke, and correct. So what do these words mean? Well, reprove has the idea of correcting. 
In fact, some of your translations may use the word correct, reprove, rebuke. Uh, so the idea of correcting, it's convincing almost. The idea of using the Word of God intellectually to help someone understand what they need to know and understand. So the one of the things that he reminds Timothy as he's in this Roman jail is the Word of God should reprove. It should correct those who are in error. It should be convincing to those because of the Holy Spirit's power. And then he goes on to rebuke. Uh, and it really has the idea of chiding or censure. There's a little bit more of a strength to this word. It's a little bit more uh, demanding to chide or censure someone. It has the idea that, hey, I'm noting this. It's not right. We need to fix this. It means to admonish. And the goal of this is to bring about change. So when the Word of God goes forth, it has the idea of bringing about change. Uh, just for a moment, turn your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 17. We'll get the idea of this word rebuke here in this text. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 18. It says this. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. So as he rebuked the demon, the idea was that change resulted. When we are rebuked, and let me just say this, there's not a one of us who could probably would honestly say, hey, I enjoy being rebuked. Ah, I don't like being rebuked. Uh, in my spirit and in my flesh, when somebody points out something that I've done wrong, when something that I should not be doing that I'm doing to correct what I'm doing, I almost get offensive. Maybe you do as well. Why? Because we don't like to be rebuked. But when we are rebuked rightly, according to the Word of God, change should result. That's the, the goal of rebuking, is change. In fact, if you go over just a few pages to, the, to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 17, you'll see another example of this. Luke chapter 17, right away in the beginning of the chapter, look at verse 3. It says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So what's the idea, once again, behind the rebuke is that change would occur. And once again, I know that we often read passages like we see in, in Luke chapter 17. We say, well, that's the preacher's job. That's the preacher's job. And, uh, you know, we'll leave it to him to take care of uh, sin issues that, 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 that people find out about. It's not the preacher's job. In fact, Jesus was talking here. I know that because it's in red. Uh, Jesus is saying to us, he says, listen, uh, he's talking to his disciples. Offenses will certainly come. There are always going to be offenses. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So the point of it was to point out what he was doing wrong so that he could correct it and do what's right. And he said, if you don't do it, it's better that a millstone be hung about his neck and they be sunk. Those are some pretty stern words that our Lord and Master proclaims here. So he says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So the idea is that we're pointing out the wrongdoing so that there can be change. And really, this is an appeal to one's conscience. What you're doing is wrong. Mike mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. A, a, a statement that I've learned from Dr. Marty Heron years ago in college is where it came from. Uh, accusations harden the will. 
questions probe the conscience. And so what we're doing is like, is what you're doing really biblical? Is what you're doing godly? Is what you're doing according to scriptures? Or is what you're doing fleshly? So we don't accuse somebody of what they're doing because they already know. Most of us know when we're doing wrong. Somebody doesn't have to remind you. We don't have to teach a kid that he's doing wrong. We know when we're doing wrong. But when we are questioned, it causes our conscience to think and to respond. And we have an opportunity to respond in the flesh or in the spirit. And the word of God helps us to do that correctly. And then he gives us another word, to correct. And the idea is to exhort, to comfort or instruct. So here is there is a hope of a closer relationship through this correction. Uh, there are several passages of Scripture that talk about this. Let's look at a couple of them. The first one is First Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11. It gives us a great example of this. In verse 11 he says this. As you know, like a father with his own children. Wow. Hmm. How does a father correct his children? See, there's the relationship part of it. There's a relationship appealing to the will of man that we must do better. In Philemon, uh, verse 9, he talks about this once again. Uh, Titus Philemon, verse 9, he says, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. So there is an appeal to correct what was a wrong thought, a wrong statement, a wrong belief. First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, as we talked about. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. This idea of urging has the idea of correcting so that change can come about through this relationship. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, I love this passage, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, the whole passage of 11 through 16, uh, John Walters really impressed upon me as a philosophy of ministry when I was being mentored by him years ago, uh, right out of Bible college. But in Ephesians chapter 4, especially verse 15, it says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. It's the idea that through this relationship we are working and being corrected. But really, the whole passage deals with this. And then one more in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. So it is the idea, uh, if you will, of being corrected in this relationship by doing what is right from the Word of God. This is an appeal to the will of man. And then he says in our text here in 2 Timothy, let's go back to our text here in chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, For the time will come, I'm sorry, verse three, verse 2, with great patience and teaching. I don't know about you, but there have been many times in my life where God has given me an opportunity to encourage somebody in a struggle that they've been facing. And then by struggle, I mean a sinful action, a sinful attitude, a sinful habit that they've been involved with. And through that, uh, I wish I could always say that, well, they just I said something, they just changed. Bless God, it just worked. But that oftentimes is not the case. It's often encouraging them to make changes, often encouraging them to change their habits and their sinful patterns. It's also 
a time of encouraging them to implement new patterns and new structures into their life so that they won't be caught in the sinfulness that is causing them to uh, break fellowship with the Lord. So this encouraging, he says, two ways is to be done with great patience and with teaching. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the less I find my patience uh, abounding. <laughs> the older I get, my patience is becoming less and less. And it's a reminder that we have to be patient with people, right? Because people don't often change overnight. You don't change overnight. I don't change overnight. It's a work of patience, but it's also a work of teaching. So he says, encourage them with patience and with teaching. And the idea here is that we have to instruct it's the replacement theory, the principle that we find in Scripture. Put off, put on. And with the old man, certain things are to die. And with the new man, things are, are to grow and, and to replace those old things. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And he tells us in the Word of God to put off and put on. There's a replacement principle. And that's only learned through teaching found in the Word of God. And so why, why should we do this? Why? For the time will come. God's Word reminds us, verse 3, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear, and so forth. So the time will come, and I believe in part we're there, right? Uh, many people do not want the truth. Many people do not want to hear or listen to truth. They're set in their ways, and they're okay. I think Mark Lowry jokingly said one time, he goes, we may not be right, but we never in doubt. And I think that's a lot of people in the world that we live in. They don't care that they may not be right, but they're not in doubt. They don't care that you believe that. They don't care that you think that. They don't care that you're getting your information from God's Word, because the Word of God doesn't mean anything to them. But the time will come, it says, even within the church, that people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Folks, you can find a church to believe anything that you want to believe. If you want to go get partied on Friday night and get wasted and, and go get drunk and everything else and, and come worship the Lord on Sunday, there's churches that will say, hey, that's fine, you know, because you're at church on Sunday morning. There are churches who will just water down the gospel and water down the Word of God and, and just kind of minimize you know, the commands of Scripture and just concentrate on the encouraging ones. You know, smorgasbord Christianity, buffet uh, Baptist beliefs, and you know, just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and not so much of that because that means I'll have to change. I'll have to put off some things and have to put on some things that are not convenient, that are not easy. Folks, there is a commitment to following Christ. And we've got to come back to the Word of God. And he says, people will not tolerate sound doctrine. And he says, secondly, people will multiply teachers for themselves. In other words, we're going to have teachers who believe what we believe, and we're going to, going to kind of band together, and we're going to encourage one another. They won't tolerate the truth. They want nothing to do with it. And they'll act of their own desires. And, and I think that there are several different illustrations of this that we see in our day and age that we live right now. And I think number one is prosperity, the gospel. Those who teach and participate prosperity theology, you are you are you are raking people into a situation where they're they're forced and almost feel obligated and uh, uh, to give what they don't have and plant their seed money so that you can benefit by driving your Mercedes. Shame on you, preacher! You're, you force them to you know mentally to to give to what they cannot afford because of the idea you need a bigger house. How many mega pastors, mega church pastors live in $10 million mansions, $5 million mansions because you have itching, you have given into itchy ears and, you, and people will multiply and you have this little network of preachers where you help each other to become bigger and better and more well known. And let me just tell you, it doesn't lead to anything good. 
The reality is, these prosperity teachers, these faith healers, are you saying, well, Pastor Ken, do you don't believe that God can, can heal people? No, I absolutely believe that God can heal people. But I believe that God can heal people, not people keep healing people. You know, there's, there's a lot of people going around saying, well, I can heal you. No, you can't. You cannot heal. God does the healing. And the reality is we want to surround ourselves with other people who believe what we believe in this area. Money grubbers. They have itchy ears to hear only what they want to hear. Shame on them. Stick to the Word of God. And one problem we're facing is that of a lack of moral objectivity. We're living in a day where moral absolutes are absolutely not tolerated. If you believe that, well, that's fine for you, preacher. If you want to hold to that position, well, that's okay for you, but my opinion is different. Well, that's just your preference. That's just your opinion. No, if we don't have an opinion and an objective, a moral objective, an absolute that we, that's coming from God's Word, we are missing the boat. And we're not going to get from it what God wants us to get from it. And he says, not only that, for the time will come when people will turn away from hearing the truth and people will turn to myths and fables. And Scripture is full of this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because earlier in 1 Timothy, we talked about this. And Paul reminded Timothy, don't spend time with those who are preaching fables and fairy tales and false doctrine and false truths and so forth. But here he says here in our text, let's look again in verse Four it says they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to miss. Verse five. But as for you, and he gives us four things that Timothy was to do, and I think four things that would be practically good for us to accept in our lives as well. So he says, verse five. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So these four things. Number one. He says, exercise self-control in everything. It's the idea of being watchful. Pay attention. Get all the facts. Know what's going on. Be aware. Be sober. Be calm. Uh, be filled with the Spirit more than anything. You're not going, you're not to be a hair on fire type of person. Oh, this happened. Now I got a you know, reactionary. No. You are being filled with the Spirit and directed by the Holy Spirit so that you can respond in a sober, calm way. To exercise self-control in everything. Boy, that's a challenge. I cannot do that except the Holy Spirit work in and through me. And the only way that's going to happen is for me to every day say, God, I need you. Please empty me of myself. Please, God, put down my flesh. And God, please fill me with the Spirit. And God, help me open doors of opportunity where I can serve you and walk with you and obey you and live righteously. I cannot do that in my flesh. I need the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. But he says, Timothy, as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Number two, he says, endure hardship. Uh, you're going to have to deal with some afflictions. Uh, over and over, we see this. In ch- back in chapter uh, 2, in verse uh, 3, he said this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, down in verse 9, he said this, For which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You're going to suffer some affliction. There are going to be days where it's not going to go the way you want it to go, Timothy. There are going to be some situations in your life that you didn't pick, that you wouldn't choose, and that you don't really want to go through, but you're going to have to. He says you're going to have to endure the hardship. But just know this, in chapter James chapter 5 and verse 13, he says this, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. 
You know, what a, what a reminder. I don't know about you, but in the world that we live in, when we go through suffering, the first thing we do is pick up our phone and call somebody that we think will give us a sympathetic ear. Uh, if you're like some people, the first thing you do is you get on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and you tell the world all your woes and struggles and who did what to you, when and where and how and why they did it. And you, know, you event and you air all your dirty laundry for the whole world to see. He says, endure hardship. In verse chapter 5, verse 3, he says, pray. The thing we ought to be doing when things are not going right, when we're going through affliction, when we're going through struggles, as we're going through difficulty, when we're going through those things that God has allowed that we wouldn't choose, pray about it. He's the only one that has the ability to help us do that anyway, right? So number one, exercise self-control in everything. Number two, endure hardship. Number three, do the work of an evangelist. I thought to myself just for a moment, when I'm going through a tough time, why would I want to be an evangelist? Well, I think one thing that it, doing the work of an evangelist does in this context is it gets your mind off of yourself. If you can put others in front of you, you're not dwelling on your own problems and your own uh, uh, situations and your own selfishness in many regards. So do the work of an evangelist. Someone once came up with an acronym for joy. If you want real joy... Jesus, others, than yourself. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, than yourself. You want to get through some of the struggles you're facing? Focus on other people's struggles. Because what I found out that oftentimes when I'm in the middle of a, a poor me and woe is me situation and I want to have a little bit of self-pity and I want to talk to somebody who will buffer me up a little bit and make me feel a little bit better, man, the first thing I want to do is tell them all my woes and, oh, it's not so bad, you'll be okay, and get the pat on the shoulder the bottom line is, what you need in that time is to stop dwelling on the problem. I've been thinking about a message I want to preach here in the near future, uh, when I'm done with this series. Uh, really, problems, projects, and praise. So what in the world does that have to do with anything? All of us have problems. All of us have circumstances, difficult situations that we would not choose. But God, for whatever reason, has allowed them. And we can view them one of two ways, which leads us to the second P, which is projects. If I view it as a problem, well, then it's all me, and I'm full of flesh, and I want everybody to know how difficult it is and how sorry you should feel for me in the whole nine yards. But the reality is, if I view that problem as a project, God gives us the opportunity to say, I'm in control of this. And I want to join God with this project. God, would you help... Help me learn what you want me to learn through it. God, would you teach me what you want me to learn through this? God, would you, Lord, just just work with me through this so that I can respond right and bring you glory through it. So that problem can either be viewed as a problem and stay as a problem that you think you're gonna that you're gonna try to overcome some way, some you know, some somehow, or you can view it as a project where God is being given authority, given permission to work th- with you through it. And when God is done with it it turns into an opportunity to praise Him. So that project problem, if it stays a problem, it's going to get you down. If you turn it into a project and give it to God, then He's going to work through it, and it's going to turn into an opportunity to praise Him later. So we're all going to have this. He says, do the work on evangelists. So a couple of things that that's going to accomplish. Number one, it's going to get your mind off yourself. And number two, it's going to put the emphasis on other people who need to hear the gospel. And I don't know about you, but God puts those people in front of me every day. And I'm constantly reminded that I need to do a better job of doing the work of an evangelist. What a practical application for me, even though he's, Paul is preaching to Timothy. It's an, it's an opportunity for me to take that to heart. And then number four, fulfill your ministry. 
Uh, that is awesome. In other words, if I could say it this way, as, as Timothy, uh, uh, Paul said, finish the race, finish the race, and finish it well. Fully carry out your duties as a preacher. The bottom line is, uh, we have a job to do. Stay faithful. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Um, the easiest thing in the world is to quit. Um, Mark Twain used to make this statement, and I, I love a lot of Mark Twain's statements. He said, quitting smoking is easy to do. I've done it hundreds of times. Uh, <laughs> the reality is, there's, there's times to quit things, and there's time to quit things. Some things we take flippantly, and we say, well, I'm going to stop doing that. Well, and we don't take it serious. That's why New Year's resolutions never last. Make up your mind that you're going to finish, and finish well. That you're going to finish strong. Um, this morning you heard from two of my assistants, uh, Pastor Mike, uh, well into his 70s, and Pastor Jim, well into his 70s, being faithful to the end. What a testimony. What an example to follow. What an ability to say, hey, God, you have my life, and stay faithful to the end. Don't stop. The easiest thing in the world is to quit. The easiest thing in the world is to make excuses. The easiest thing in the world is to say, well, it's not worth it. It is worth it. Uh, God's word reminds us is that um, we'll be rewarded in due season if we faint not. Stay faithful to the end. Fulfill your ministry, Paul was telling Timothy. Stay true to the word. Stay true to your calling. Stay true to what I've called you to do. Don't quit. I don't know about you, but this challenged me. I, I'm so excited to be a preacher. I wish I would have had the zeal in my 20s. I wish I would have had the confidence that I have now as a preacher that in my 20s that I have now. You know, there's a part of us that as we grow older...